Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. This is Molly. And I'm Kristen. Kristen. Yes. True or false? We have the best listeners in the world. Oh, true. True. Of course it's true. Um, because you guys are so well-spoken, you are very thoughtful when you write to us. We just love hearing what you guys have to say. And what's kind of neat about our listeners is they have these conversations with each other, and they don't even realize it because they're sending it all to us, mm-hmm. and we get to see both sides of it. So um, the most recent conversation that's just been fascinating for Kristen and me um, is something that we're calling Grossgate. Now, a little background on this. Uh, we did a shark episode about whether, um, you would get attacked by a shark if you were having your period. And the word gross was used in reference to menstruation, which prompted many listeners to write in and say, you know what? This is not gross. You shouldn't be using the word gross in relation to menstruation. It's natural. We need to talk about it. So on and so forth. Right. We need to address it in a more mature and honest way because it is a, you know, natural function of a woman's body. Exactly. And so um, Kristen made a correction as such on another episode, which prompted more listeners to write in and say, what? Say, um, you know, this this is really gross. Like, don't pretend it's not gross. Like, taking a poo is natural, but I'm not going to sit here and say that's not gross. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and one email that comes to mind, Molly, is from uh, a male listener who pointed out that, you know, he, do, he he thought that, yeah, periods are gross, but he also thinks that semen's gross. And evidently, you know, it's uh, the release of it is part of his, you know, daily routine. Mm-hmm. So he was like, I mean, I'm not, he, he was just like, I'm not trying to discriminate against periods. It's just, just a gross bodily fluid. Yeah. And we have periods once a month, whereas that sounded a little more daily. Yeah. So why is it so taboo to talk about a period? Because you never see it mentioned, you never, I mean, it's not part of popular culture discussions. And even in comedy, Molly, um, a lot of bodily fluids like poop and pee and even semen show up fairly regularly in, especially in like things like Judd Apatow films. Uh-huh. But, uh, you, you may brought up the point that, um, you found a, a blog post recently that said that the movie Superbad uh-huh. was like the first real kind of graphic menstruation joke that was made. In case you guys haven't seen it, there's a scene where a girl is wearing white pants and she's grinding on a guy and, you know, she gets her period and, you can put the rest together. And that was really the first time. I mean, in 2008, when yeah. it came out, that's the first time that we're really having, you know, kind of it's really entering comedy. And uh, even in 1973, uh, the first sitcom to have a period related plot line came around with an episode of All in the Family where Suzanne Summers character gets her period. And uh, it, that episode got more viewer mail than any other in the history of All in the Family because viewers were so disgusted that they would even mention periods on national television. Mention the unmentionable. Yeah, in the 70s, 1973. And All in the Family, like, that's not like, that couldn't be the only hate mail they were getting about it. Yeah. So anyway, and if it is in popular culture, it's used as this insult. Like, yeah. you know, a woman is moody. She, you know... Oh, it's her time of the it's month. Her time Watch of the out month. for her. Exactly. Um, and that's also carried over into real life. You think about allegations lobbied at women who are running for higher office, like, oh, you know, I hope the bomb doesn't go off when she's having her period. How will she deal with it? Mm-hmm. Oh, no. Yeah. 
So why, so we have, yeah, the, this whole like idea of menstruation being gross or it's used as some kind of an insult against women. There's just this whole taboo around it. And we didn't come up with this idea of, you know, the menstrual taboo. It's actually, um, an accepted term. Right. So we're going to talk about the menstrual taboo. And Kristen, I, the question when I was researching this is menstruation the last taboo? Yeah. I'm going to argue yes. Yeah. I would say from our research, I, I would agree with that. As far as something that is found in so many different cultures and still lingers today. Right. I mean, this is something that, you know, women go through and yet we still can't talk about it. I can't think of a male equivalent of that. Yeah. I mean, even, you know, erectile dysfunction is on during prime time. Yeah. So let's go back. Let's go. Let's go to anthropology first. Mom. Oh, let's. So there's this book called Blood Magic, um, The Anthropology of Menstruation by Thomas Buckley and Alma Gottlieb. Hope I'm pronouncing that last name correct. And, uh, and they're talking about, uh, they're looking for menstruation taboos in different cultures. And they find that from all the studies from all these different tribes, that menstruation taboos are nearly universal. That in some form or another, every society has some kind of menstruation taboo about, you know, either, you know, sending the women away to a special hut while they're on, um, their period or, um, thinking that, assuming that women have some kind of special um, power mm-hmm. that they have during their period, that some kind of uh, purification process. Right. And when it comes to the actual women, like Kristen said, it can either be something kind of good for the woman, like she's having this kind of mystical experience, she's in sort of a holy place, she's transforming, or it can be just that the woman is kind of a demon, mm-hmm. which is sort of the modern stereotype if you want to say like, you know, a woman can't be president because she's on her period. It's either the sign of weakness or it's the sign of empowerment. But regardless of how they feel about the women, um, the actual blood itself is always associated with evil forces. The actual product is considered, you know, a waste product, something, something gross for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then carrying forward to today, a lot of those, uh, those taboos have created this set of cultural givens, if you will, about, um, periods. There was, um, one source that we found said that there are more than 128 English terms and phrases that we use to discuss periods, all those period euphemisms like ant flow, et cetera. And most of them either focus on just the cyclical nature of, of periods or, um, sexual unavailability, discomfort, and inconvenience. So overwhelmingly, these, um, these cultural, cultural ideas of menstruation um, usually carry negative connotations. Right. You never say, oh, joy, a period. Well, Molly, you could say, you could use the phrase, I've got my flower. Um, you want me to throw out some of some of these 128 phrases? I, yes, this is going to be fun for everyone. Okay, we've got um, old faithful, cyclical nature. we got safe again. Okay, you so know, that's you get your, your escaped pregnancy. Exactly. This one I, that you and I had never heard before, the old cotton bicycle. Yes, I did not realize I was ever riding a cotton bicycle. Yeah. Um, then there's the tides in Eve's curse, which is, um, I think that one needs to be banished from, um, our terminology. Um, indisposed, uh, mm-hmm. riding a white horse, which you might want to qualify if you say that you're riding the white horse because people might, you know, send you off to rehab instead of buy you a pack of tampons. Um, and then there are the monthlies and the red flag is up. And then some of the ones we were talking about from our own childhood, I believe that you were told that you had a visitor come. Yeah. When my, uh, when my older sister, I don't know if this is TMI for our audience, but when my oldest sister, um, found out that, uh, you know, monarchy had descended upon me, um, she, uh, she came up to me and said, Kristen, I heard, uh, I heard you had a visitor 
last night and I was so confused. And then she, and I asked her who, what the, what she was talking about. And she said, you know, Aunt Flo. And I was just befuddled. I, maybe it was because I was, you know, homeschooled at the time and just didn't, didn't really get it. But then she explained it to me. And at first I was horrified, but then, you know, I felt like I was also being initiated, you know, into, uh, into the conger women, you know, the conger clan, mm-hmm. my mom and my two older sisters. And now I'd, finally become a woman too. But because we don't really have great terms to stick on it, it's kind of like this wordless initiation. Even when you think about advertisements about getting your period, you know, um, it's usually like a blue liquid that they're pouring mm-hmm. onto pads to show how absorbent they are. Or the, the bouncing red dot. Yeah. <laughs> or like the latest ones where um, Mother Nature comes to visit this girl and she's just like a woman dressed up as a fairy. Yeah. Like... If you're a young girl trying to figure out what's going on with your body, how is that going to help? Yeah, you have to like, you know, swim through all these, figure out all these euphemisms, mm-hmm. you know, to actually get to the point of like, oh, they're talking about, talking about periods. So Molly, let's go, let's travel back in time and figure out, um, where this menstrual taboo started. Um, because it, it's got a pretty extensive history. It really does. And I think that once you learn about the history, you kind of understand why no one ever talked about it because People just had no clue what was going on. But to some extent, that's because women didn't really have that many periods back in the old hunter-gatherer days. Yeah, in hunter-gatherer days, um, not only were women, you know, were women's lifespans much shorter than they were now, and women were getting their periods much later than girls do today, more in their, um, in their teens than in, say, like 11, 12 years old. But um, according to an article by Tracy Clark Flory called The End of Menstruation, in hunter-gatherer days, women had um, only about 160 periods in their lifetime because a lot of the times they were either pregnant or breastfeeding. Right. And that's something we did talk about briefly in um, Do You Need to Have a Period Every Month, where we talked about how just women are having more periods. But then because these hunter-gatherer women are spending so much time pregnant, the fact that you are having a period immediately becomes kind of worthless. This is from a book called Is Menstruation Obsolete? And they were talking about since ancient civilization, if women are, are having the babies, if that's their primary role in society, then, um, you know, having a period is kind of almost like a loss. Yeah. And the women who were having periods obviously were the ones who were unmarried and not bearing children. So they were the prostitutes. Mm-hmm. Basically, very early on, there was kind of this link with the loose woman and a period. Yeah. And, um, and so it, it starts to carry this, uh, this negative connotation far back in time. Um, for instance, uh, the Persians allowed women four days in isolation to have their periods. And if they weren't finished with it by then, they were given a hundred lashes and then sent back into seclusion for five more days because they thought that it was some kind of, you know, purification process. They were getting rid of, you know, evil spirits and that if it wasn't done by then that they needed to have it lashed out of them. Hurry up your, Hurry up your purification, girls. Yes. Now, in looking at the history of menstruation, we have sort of one bright shining light, and that's Hippocrates, a man before his time who did see menstruation as positive because it was a cleansing process, although he did think that what was coming out were bad humors. Yeah, because they don't really understand that, like, back then they they understood that it was some kind of cyclical thing that happened to most women, and they knew that it had something to do with pregnancy because it was only until after a girl had um, her first period that they would, you know, she would be considered, um, marriageable, but they didn't really understand why this was happening. Cause it doesn't seem, it wouldn't seem natural for, you know, for blood to be coming out of a girl's vagina every 28 days. Um, so then, uh, we come up to Pliny and, uh, who wrote the, who wrote natural history, which was civilization's first encyclopedia. And he can't stand periods. Um, get this Molly. He, uh, he blames periods for blighted crops 
killed bees, wine turned to vinegar, dimmed mirrors, blunted razors, etc. Basically, a woman on her period is going to ruin your life, so you should stay away. And it really wasn't until the 1400s that natural history, the information in natural history, was questioned in full. So... Here's another um, genius in action. Da Vinci thought that menstrual blood turned into breast milk. I kind of like that. You know, if I didn't know what was going on, I think that's a, a nice assumption. He thought that the, uh, the, the um, like a woman's reproductive system and her breasts were somehow connected. So basically, after you stop having the periods to have your baby, yeah, the then fluid at some point goes it goes up. Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah, you know, thought that's a fun, fun fact, though. <laughs> it was a fun fact. But it also goes to show for such, you know, a genius of his time, he still, you know, the idea of a woman's body was still very, very unknown and very mystical. Yeah, it wasn't until they started dissecting bodies, you know, kind of around that time that they actually see like, oh, women have this totally different reproductive anatomy. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then not until the 18th century, with the invention of the microscope, do you start to have a better understanding of the process of menstruation, of why, you know, what's actually going on with the uterine lining and the shedding and all of that. And 1905, 1905, that's just, what, 105 years ago, basically? Mm-hmm. Okay. Scientists didn't understand until then that there were changes in the uterus that were um, responding to hormones. Yeah. We like to joke about hormones. No one knew about them until 1905. And Molly, not only that, but they weren't even calling them hormones at the time. They just referred to them as some kind of secretions from the ovaries. And and it wasn't until 1929 that we have progesterone, one of the most important hormones that gets our periods kicked off, discovered. Mm-hmm. Now, um, 1921, yep. Kotex invents its first maxi pad. In 1936, Tampax invents the first tampon with an applicator and a string. Now, I will say we get tons of requests for... The history of the tampon. And we will definitely do those at some point, but we're going to stick on our cultural track and come back to how women have contained their periods at a different time. So really, when it comes down to it, only in the past hundred years or so have we even figured out what's going on with periods, Mm -hmm. you know, but we still have this lingering cultural taboo that's lasted for millennia. Yeah. And I, I guess that makes a lot more sense when you realize that they had no idea what was going on. Fear of the unknown. You're not going to immediately celebrate something that just freaks you out. Right. And going back to that idea that you said, it's it's linked to, you know, the unmarried women who aren't having children who are still having their periods that it becomes, you know, uh, establishes this idea of, of, you know, a negative process. But we should point out that not every culture finds it negative. While every culture has kind of a taboo and some of them are positive or negative related to the woman, what was interesting to me is Kristen found um, the origin of the word taboo, which is Polynesian, which means both holy and forbidden. So therefore, the opposite of it would be profane or common. Yeah, we think of a taboo as something that's um, that's bad, and the opposite, you know, an antonym of taboo would be, you know, something positive. But it actually has more of a uh, a mystical root because going back to those um, those early tribes, um, like we said, it it seemed like the women were sent away to huts and in some situations weren't allowed to see the sun or have contact with other people because um, they thought that uh, when the period came, they were, um, you know, in contact with some kind of, you know, just mystical power and they wouldn't want to... Um, infiltrate that by having contact with people who are just, you know, just commoners. Yeah. And especially keep the men away from them so that they're not 
influenced by this. Yeah, there's also this idea, yeah, that that a, a menstruating woman can also take away the power, some kind of power from men as well, which is kind of interesting. But, um, you know, sometimes I think we put our, I put my modern glasses on at least and say, you know, if they're secluding a woman in a hut, that may sound like they're doing something that benefits the woman, but it's really not. I mean, I, I don't think you should isolate a woman from their tribe, but you did find one instance, um, with these tribes in Venezuela and Western Canada where it was actually kind of nice for them to be secluded because that's when they had all their affairs and they were autonomous. I mean, they had no one telling them what to do. They lived in this hut and, could kind of just be themselves. And it was also kind of like a mini vacation because if they're secluded away in this hut, then they don't have to do their normal chores. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's probably backbreaking work. So once a month they get to, uh, you know, it's like mom's taking a break at the spa or something, <laughs> but much different <laughs> from a spa. Uh, so some of these other traditions, carrier Indians in British Columbia, you're left alone for three to four years in the wilderness at the time of your monarchy. I mean, monarchy rights are kind of, you know, we probably just got like ice cream from our mom, right? Well, I didn't get ice cream, mom. <laughs> I think I got ice cream. <laughs> I just got picked on by my older sisters. Um, but you know, imagine being sent off to the wilderness for three to four years. Yeah. And the, and the reason why, um, the carrier Indians do that is because, uh, they don't want the girl's footsteps to defile the tribe's past. So that kind of is linked with the more negative connotations of the, the menstrual taboo. And then in Cambodia, some, um, some groups, people will, um, send a girl away for a hundred days, um, when she has her monarchy. And then, uh, in India, in some places, um, monarchy, means a four-day seclusion without the girl touching the ground or seeing the sun because they feel like she is in a state suspended between heaven and earth Mm -hmm. when she becomes a woman. Now, sometimes these ceremonies can um, turn out, unfortunately, like often genital mutilation is done at the time of your first period. And so even to, you know, it's still sort of that that double-edged sword. Some cultures see it as this very positive thing. You're becoming a woman, you're mature, and then some see it as this time to basically cut off your weakness and isolate you, cut off your genitalia, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And even today, um, uh, menstruation can be a big problem for girls, especially in developing countries, because there aren't sanitation facilities available at schools, especially for them to, or hygiene products available for them to be able to deal with their period and be able to go to school. And, um, for instance, uh, there is a World Health Organization report from, uh, 2004 that says that of the 113 million children currently not enrolled in school worldwide, 60% are girls. Because a lot of times in these very rural areas, um, when girls have their period, they they have to stay home. Mm-hmm. And if you're staying home one week out of every month, that's adding up, you know, to a huge educational gap. And uh, they're basically having become school dropouts because of uh, of their periods. And so there are some efforts to provide more more sanitation facilities and more um, more, you know, tampons and pads for girls to be able to, to do that. And I will say um, I've learned that tampons and pads are one of the best things to donate to homeless shelters Mm -hmm. because that's something that's sort of overlooked when you don't have a home. You sort of, you know, we take having that bathroom counter of tampons for granted. Yeah. But Molly, for some women, especially in um, the Western world, uh, 
we have the choice now to have a period or not at all because with certain birth control options that we've talked about before on other podcasts, uh, women either have fewer periods every year or it eliminates your period altogether. Which is also a point of contention among women, much the same way that gross or not gross is because some would argue, why are you getting rid of the one thing that kind of makes you a woman, mm-hmm. which we also touched on in that podcast. Um, but, you know, I think that having the period is still linked with having children. I mean, I remember very early on thinking, OK, I have to put up with this once a month and then one day far down the road, I can have kids, which mm-hmm. is a weird thing to tell yourself in middle school. It is a little odd. But, you know, that is sort of like the bargain that I think women make when they're having their period. Which is why I wanted to ask a question. We've had a few re- uh, listeners write in and say, I never want to have children. Enough with society glorifying children. Yeah. What's your relationship with your period like? Yeah. If that's not too personal, type out and send to me. Well, and also, you know, I think it is important for, for girls, especially younger girls, to be able to, um, to have discussions about, frank discussions about periods and not have to, you know, not have it associated with this, you know, time of, you know, hiding away and, mm-hmm. you know, all the, pain and cramping and moodiness that, that may or may not go along with it. Um, because it is something, you know, that, like you said, that is a defining part of being a female. Right. It's almost, we were talking earlier about how it's kind of a double-edged sword is you don't want any boy to know you've had your period. Yeah. But when you go around with like your friends at middle school, it's like, you definitely want to have had your period. Yeah, Molly. I definitely, I remember, um, being around that age of like 11, 12, 13 and being in conversations with girls where we'd go around and ask, you know, had you had your period or not? And he didn't want to be the, the odd girl out who hadn't had it. I mean, it is this definite rite of passage, but then as you get older, you know, you don't want it to ever seem like it's any kind of hindrance, right. um, even though sometimes you do have debilitating cramps and mood swings. And um, it is a pain to it is a have pain. to, you know, change your tampon every couple of hours. Um, but at the same time, um, having a positive um, view on menstruation and having a personal comfort level with being able to deal with it and being able to talk about it does seem to have benefits not only for women, but also for men. For instance, um, there was a study in the Annals of Sexual Behavior that came out in 2003 that um, found that a comfort with personal sexuality was associated with a comfort with menstruation as a normal, publicly acceptable event. And it seems like that kind of goes into this idea of being able to um, you know, accepting as a woman, accepting how your body works and dealing with it and kind of owning it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still this very fine line, Kristen, where we want everyone to be accepting of it, to understand how it works. But it's still, you know, it's still not something that I want to have um, come up in polite conversation. Yeah. So that I think that's sort of the big divide is how do you have the honest conversation about it without it being kind of crude to bring up? Yeah. I mean, like my college roommate and I were best friends, but as far as we were both concerned, the other one never had to go number two or have a period Mm -hmm. because it just wasn't discussed. But Mm -hmm. I mean, if if I should have been able to talk about it with anyone, it probably should have been her. Yeah. But as my mom would always say, there is a time and a place for everything. True. So we have tried to make this a place to start a conversation about menstruation. Yeah. So we want to hear from you guys. Do you think that menstruation is... The last taboo. I mean, are Molly and I crazy and thinking that um, it's time for us to get over it and, uh, you know, be open and frank about our 
periods if we if we need to be or mm-hmm. want to be. Um, and guys, what do you think? Are you completely horrified that you now know stories about mine and Molly's menstrual experience? <laughs> and um, you know, weird if, they're, if they're even listening this long, yeah. If you've gotten through this, guys, kudos, way to go. <laughs> Um, so yeah, write to us. Uh, we would like to hear from you on this topic because it's kind of an open discussion. Molly and I just kind of wanted to open it up, see the history of uh, the menstrual taboo and why it is that uh, that it still kind of lingers today. Yeah. So, so while we wait for your responses yeah. to momstuff at howstuffworks.com, we'll go ahead and read some responses of people who have already written us. So I'm going to start out this week's listener mail segment um, with a correction from our podcast, Do Stories Get a Bad Rap? Um, in that episode, we said that two girls um, died while rushing the sorority Delta Sigma Theta. I was wrong. That should actually have been the sorority Alpha Kappa Alpha. Mm-hmm. That happened a couple, um, a few years ago, actually. Um, and I also have a couple other emails in response to that podcast. And the first one comes from Bailey. And, uh, she said that she went to an all women's college, um, that was on a coordinate system with an all men's college. So although I took classes with men, participated in clubs with men, lived on the same dorms as men, my diploma, deans, college colors, and traditions were different from those of my male colleagues. While there are fraternities on campus, my college's constitution forbids sororities. Approximately every four years, some woman challenges this, and each time the majority of the student body rejects the challenge. Many of us felt that since our school is all women and is in some ways its own sisterhood um, with its own traditions and history, a sorority would be a superfluous, would be superfluous and might even break up our fairly small and cohesive student body. I would not have personally joined a sorority if it had existed, but my parents were both Greeks and I was inducted um, into two academic honor societies that evolved out of traditional Greek societies. So perhaps one of the consequences of the bad reputation of sororities could be campuses that don't have any. Women who don't want to be in sororities may still feel that they would be affected by the presence of sororities on campus. I thought that was interesting. Good perspective. uh, Yeah, good perspective. And uh, I'll throw in her reading list as well. Um, A few of her books she's reading uh, include The Trouble with Physics by Lee Smolin, uh, His Majesty's Dragon by Naomi Novik, and uh, Three Cups of Tea by Greg Mortensen. Okay. Those are three of many. And that's from Bailey. And the next one we have is from Paige. She said, hey, girls, I just want to share my sorority experience after listening to your podcast. I grew up in the Seattle area and 67 kids from my graduating class went to University of Washington. I always said that I would never join a sorority because I knew the types of girls from my high school that were joining them at UW. I decided to get... UW. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) That's for the Washington folks out there. Corrected. (laughs) UW. I don't know that... That northeastern lingo. Northwestern. Western. Or cardinal directions either, evidently. Um, I decided to go to the University of Oregon. You have one for that? Go Ducks. Wow. <laughs> um, she went to the University of Oregon and a friend coerced her into joining um, her for sorority rush. Even though I never thought it was something I'd be interested in, I loved the whole process and had instant friends within a few weeks of getting to school. We had a house on campus where you were required to live um, sophomore and junior year. This was a great compromise because it gave you the year in the dorms to meet other people on campus and a year of freedom right at the end of college, but two fun years in between to live with all the girls. We were not allowed to have alcohol in the house and or boys above the first floor. And since seniors lived out of the house, they, there weren't a ton of people around to buy booze. And the older girls got really annoyed if you asked them to buy 
alcohol, so it was a rare occurrence. However, the alcohol came into play when boys got involved. The fraternities, unlike sororities, had no house moms, no rules, and while technically U of O is a dry campus, there was always alcohol readily available in the frat houses. It sounds a lot like the Greek system, actually, at my alma mater. Um, and in fact, I remember several part trips to the beer docks in Springfield, Oregon, where they could buy past date beer for pennies to supply their parties. Molly, do you know about this penny beer, the beer no. docks? I'm making a trip to, where was that? Springfield, Oregon. So it was always a fun time. We never really had any scary incidents or deaths while I was there, but there were definitely a few trips to the hospital for stitches, including myself. And she said the worst hazing she ever encountered was when um, her big sis would give um, them a pledge name that was really uh, that was a dirty or explicit phrase that rhymed with your name. And then um, they would blindfold you and stand all the pledges in a circle in alphabetical order. And you had to say your full pledge name. And if you forgot it or messed up, everyone had to take a drink and then start over. Some of them were really long and ridiculous and harder to remember with every drink. It sure was fun the next year when you were a big sis, however. But she did drop out of her sorority her junior year because she went abroad and it was expensive. And they kind of grew apart when she came back from her sorority for, for her senior year. But the scar on her chin will always remind her of all the crazy fun nights with a bunch of girls she never thought she'd have anything in common with. So I thought that was a nice story. Thank you, Paige, for writing in. If slightly scary. Yeah. Stitches <laughs> on the chin. Yeah, just the chin, though. <laughs> now, it's a, now the scar is a memory, Molly. Okay, um, I'm just going to close up listener mail with a quick shout out to our listener, Emily, from Wisconsin. What up, Emily? Emily is going on a 10-hour flight to Poland, and she's taking a ton of Stuff Mom Never Told You podcast with her. Spread the word to Poland, Emily. She wanted us to do a podcast on Poland, but unfortunately, Poland is not mine and Molly's area of expertise. Um but there is a lot of fantastic information out there on the World Wide Web. And you know where I bet she can also find some information on Poland, Molly? I have a guess. It's, it's how, how stuff, stuff works. works. Whoa. <laughs> Jinx. Um, yeah, you can also check out our blog. It's called How To Stuff. And, um, yeah, if you want to learn about Poland or about menstruation. <laughs> or, or both. <laughs> or both and. Uh, you can head over to HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?